Hello, it's John Roach here. Our most recent episode was the 25th story we put out since we started the podcast almost five years ago. To mark the occasion, I thought we could revisit some of our first few stories and package them up together so you can enjoy them back to back in one episode. We've mostly been doing documentaries these days, so I've chosen four of our fiction stories that will fit neatly into an hour. I'm calling this the Yarn Drama Hour, or a bit less than an hour. If you are a newer listener and you're not familiar with any of our fiction episodes, here's your chance to binge them. We're very proud of the original music and sound design on these, so it's worth listening on headphones and turning the volume up. We'll start off with one of our most popular stories. It was also the very first story we released back in 2017. It features the brilliant actors Andy Gillies and Mary Luby. Yarn. Yarn number one, the absence of Gary. Hello there, my name's Gary. I'm calling for a graphic design agency called... We, we specialise in creating bespoke websites and original brand identities for courageous clients. Oh, oh, I see. No, no, it's not a problem. How about I call back at a more convenient time? Next week, perhaps? I see. Oh, how about... Gary calmly put the receiver down and switched his attention to his computer screen. He tapped a few keys on his keyboard, double-clicked his mouse, and picked up the phone receiver again. Hello there, my name's Gary. I overheard the same monologue for the tenth time that day. Each call met with a similar end, but this rarely seemed to bother Gary. His manner and tone, in that distinct accent, never faltered, even late into the day. From where I sat, I could only see the back of his head, which bobbed forward and back, as if he was casting a fishing line, hoping one of his words would catch a bite. Even though I couldn't always see him, I could imagine his cheeky grin and baby face as he delivered his lines. I could always tell when it was a woman on the other end, because Gary's tone would grow flirtatious and the muffled sounds of giggles could be heard from the receiver. Hey, I think I'm in there. I mean, I think we're in there for a meeting. Gary would announce after hanging up the phone and spinning around in his chair. His intentional slip of words was designed to get a laugh out of us. We obliged. Right, who's for a pot of tea then? Two yeses, a full house. He instantly regretted the offer. Michelle, I don't have to make one of your weird Frankenstein combinations, do I? Darjeeling Assam mix, please, Gary. <sighs> Two bags each. Michelle was polite, but her tone was loaded with the self-importance she derived from being the boss. This is where I found myself. My first real job out of art school. The tiny three-man graphic design agency was founded by Michelle. I was her first employee. Gary was the newest member of staff, hired to find new clients. Gary's music taste was the first thing that piqued my interest. His encyclopedic knowledge of reggae music was astounding. Not just because he was a white cockney with Irish parents, but because he was never wrong. I trawl the internet trying to find an obscure recording, play it for him, and four bars into the song. That's too easy. Toots and the Maytales, Monkey Man from the 1968 album, Sweet and Dandy. And Gary's interest in Afro-Caribbean culture didn't stop there. I, I spend at least one month every year in Jamaica. I'm just sorting out my accommodation now for the next trip. Wow, that's great. Where are you staying? Well, it's I've got, got three gorgeous ladies out there and if I line up my schedule just right I can discreetly jump from one to the next then I'm the wiser. Sounds stressful, I said, 
trying to hide any hint of judgement in my response, so he'd carry on telling me his plans. That's fine. The only drawback is I have to end up going back to the airport more than I'd like. See, when the first bird drops me off at the departures at the end uh, <laughs> on my holiday, I'll run over to the arrivals where the next one is waiting to pick me up. It's a pretty small island though, right? Do any of these women know each other? Gary's eyes lit up. <laughs> I've got that covered. I use different names with each of them. The toughest bit is persuading my lady back here to let me go away on my own for a month every year. So what do you say? Well, well, you see this is going to sound terrible. Gary leans forward and lowers his voice. I say I'm going to do charity work. I say I'll build houses for the people who live in the slums. <laughs> Which is quite funny, because I struggled to put a shop up for my girlfriend last week. I mean, I'm not sure how she thinks I'm putting up houses. I tell her my arthritis doesn't bother me half as much as Jamaica because of the warm temperature. Now I know when she's about to ask me to do something around the house because she'll have to get into it up full blast whenever I'm over. As the weeks pass, we couldn't help noticing Gary's unexplained absence every Monday morning. Sometimes he'd just be late by three or four hours, but other weeks he wouldn't show up at all. Most Mondays played out the same way. Gary's chair would remain empty well past 10am. Michelle would try to call him only to be greeted by Gary's upbeat answering message. Then, usually just before lunch, Gary would surface. His sudden appearance always came with a dramatic story. There was the morning Gary said he woke up in excruciating pain. Even the slightest touch to either of his legs caused him to erupt in agony. When he got to the hospital, he was promptly diagnosed with gout. Gout? I mean, who am I? Emery the Eighth? Another morning, a girlfriend had changed the locks of his flat and thrown his belongings out in the street. Later that day, he showed me an ad for his own flat-screen TV on Gumtree, and another for his record player. He laughed it off. <laughs> She's missing a trick there. That's an Electron Signature Retro Hi-Fi Stereo System. It's worth three times as much as that. One Monday afternoon, he didn't call the office until after lunch. I looked at Michelle's face as she listened to Gary's unusually downbeat tone on the line. No problem, Gary. We're very sorry for your loss. Take as much time as you need. Michelle put the receiver down gently and announced, His mother died this time. I wonder if this is the first time she's died. Michelle scowled at me, even though I'm sure she was thinking the same thing. Gary's days at were numbered. He must have known it, because his final Monday excuse topped them all. 3pm and still no sign of Gary. The office was tense. Michelle hadn't said a word in hours. She had barely even moved. The only sound that could be heard were the aggressive clicks of her mouse. I began to hear heavy, hurried footsteps thunder down the hallway. They stopped right outside our office. I recognised Gary's deep, wheezing breaths on the other side of the door. The door swang open, and Gary burst into the room. I've had a nightmare morning. Literally, a disaster. Woke up at 3am by the smoke alarm, the building's on fire! I watched as Michelle's eyes widened as she feigned surprise. Gary went on to detail what the firefighters told him, possible causes of the blaze, and how he was lucky he had just replaced a battery in his smoke alarm. He intermittently threw in a cough or two between the sentences. Michelle turned to me. You can take your lunch now. Damn. I was hoping if I kept quiet and didn't make any sudden movements, she'd forget I was there. This technique might work on bears, but it didn't work on Michelle. 
Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, see you guys in a bit. I thought about listening outside the door, but feared my grumbling stomach might have given me away. I returned half an hour later to Michelle sitting alone at her desk. Go anywhere interesting for lunch? Where's Gary? Lap sang Assam. Two to one ratio and then I'll uh. tell you. I let out a frustrated groan. A sound my mother would recognise from my teenage years and begrudgingly fulfilled the tea order. Gary won't be coming back. Michelle revealed with an air of relief as she slurped her tea. What did you say? Did you call him out on any of his excuses? Didn't have to. I've been tracking the internet history on his work computer. I just read him out these three stats. Visits during work hours last week to a website called JamaicanInterracialDating.com over 1,000. Visits during work hours last week to an online forum for Millwall football fans over 500. Number of new clients won in the last five weeks, zero. Upon hearing his most frequented online hangouts and his single-digit sales figure, Gary got up and left without a word, his coughing fit miraculously cured. So where was he every Monday morning? Your guess is as good as mine. Now let's just get back to work. That brochure won't design itself. I would find out for myself a few weeks later. Michelle was out of the office, so I was playing music full blast and drinking regular builder's tea. Hello, how can I help? Hi mate, it's, it's Gary. Yeah, what are you calling me? Are you playing a special? <laughs> yeah, do you know they're a massively influenced by the waiters? Just check them out. Hi Gary, how have you been doing man? Michelle's not here this morning. I assume this was going to be about money. Nah, it's alright mate. Yeah, actually, you're the, one, uh, you're the one I'm after actually. There's been a, fair, a, a, bit, a bit of a misunderstanding. Uh, can you confirm to this gentleman that I'm an employee of the uh, company? After a second or two of rustling, a second voice emerged. Hello there, this is PC Winston Noble at Southwark Police Station. I've got Mr O'Reilly with me here. Um, he was detained yesterday for disorderly conduct during an incident near Millwall Football Ground. Listen, uh, we're prepared to leave him off with a warning if you, as his employer, can ensure that he's usually an individual of upstanding behaviour. Ah, uh, yeah, sure. He is. Definitely. I lowered my voice to sound more authoritative. We've been uh, wondering um, where he was. It's very out of character. As soon as I hung up the phone, I started combing the internet for police and CCTV images of known offenders of organised violence at football grounds. Eventually I stopped at one image of a flabby, bare-chested man with a cheeky baby-faced grin. It was Gary, our own reggae-loving football hooligan. Next up is our most awarded episode. It was featured on Chicago Radio and on the Third Coast Festival's Best Picks podcast. We also turned this one into an animated comic book. You can see that on our Yarn uh, YouTube channel. Yarn. Yarn number five, Lefty. My body convulsed on the floor of the tiny bathroom, 
This was the most intense pain I'd ever felt in my 12 years on the earth. My screams subsided soon after I dropped the tile, but the pain was only intensified. I landed face up with my left leg bent back under me. My back arched while my arms and right leg spread out, jamming themselves up against the wall to my right and the side of the bathtub to my left. It was the first time I had bent my leg in over eight weeks. Up until a few days previous, my left leg was encased in a full-length cast. Disuse atrophy had caused the muscles in the leg to shrivel and harden. Bending it now meant muscles that hadn't contracted in all that time creaked like a taut length of old rope. My knee joint locked in a bent position, like the leg of one of my toy action figures. There was no way it would spring back into a straight position under its own strength. I'd have to force it open, like the jaws of a bear trap, but the pain was all-encompassing. Why did I bend my leg if I knew it was way too soon to do so? Well, I didn't bend it, nor did anyone else. The left leg did it himself. I've got cerebral palsy. It's a neurological disorder caused by a lack of oxygen to the brain during childbirth. In my case, it's a little like a stroke. And like a stroke, it can affect one side of the body. But there are different levels of severity, depending on how badly the brain gets damaged. Sometimes, it can affect the whole body, facial movements or oral ability. I actually don't know much more about it other than that. That's pretty much how it was explained to me as a kid, and I never felt the urge to dive deeper into it. There's no real cure as such, but physiotherapy and certain surgeries can help. How does it affect one side of the body exactly? Well, there's a breakdown in communication between your brain and your limbs. Physically, this manifests as reduced dexterity, muscle spasm, and involuntary movement. So it's all related to your brain and your central nervous system, but it feels like your leg has a mind of its own. My left leg's mind has a lot in common with the self-destructive, stubborn teenager. He's hell-bent on rebelling against anyone who tries to tell him what to do, and he's happy to drag anything he's attached to down with him in the process. Lefty and I didn't get off to one of the best of starts. Back when I was learning my lefts from my rights, an easy way to remember one from the other was to think of my right leg, that was right, and my wrong leg, that was left. To this day, when giving someone directions, that's still how I remember left from right. As a toddler, I pretty much ignored Lefty. His insistence on freaking out or cramping up all the time prompted me to exclude him from the whole process of walking. I'd just hop around on Righty instead. That was quicker, and Righty was happy to do it. Lefty did not like that. I could always rely on Righty though. He was the strong, silent type. He did what he was told, and he never kicked up a fuss. I learned to lean on Righty, because his erratic brother couldn't be trusted to share the load. That infuriated Lefty even more. I knew I couldn't hop around forever. I'd end up stomping the life out of Righty. So I was forced to start letting Lefty contribute with some stuff. Walking for starters. Sure, he had a weird way of doing it, but it got us places. And Righty was always there very patient and at the ready to step in and take control if Lefty had one of his tantrums. 
Lefty's outbursts would erupt at the most awkward moments. Keeping still during a visit to the barber's chair was an impossibility. When the buzz of the electric razor echoed in my ear, Lefty shot up under the gown, kicking clumps of freshly cut hair into the air and causing even the steadiest handed hairdresser to veer off course. Uh, whoops, the barber would say. You wanted the locks short, right? Lefty was also a genius at lulling me into a false sense of security. I'd be walking down the stairs, for example. Lefty may have appeared relaxed and compliant, so I might not even hold the handrail. Big mistake. If someone appeared at the foot of the stairs, Lefty would think, Time for an impromptu goose step demonstration, oi! He'd launch himself forward and lock his knee in an homage to the Ministry of Funny Walks. Inevitably, this sent me tumbling down the stairs. Are you okay? The innocent bystander would say, Oh yeah, uh, watch out for that dodgy step, I'd reply as I brushed myself off. Lefty loved an audience. Public spaces were where he could exert maximum damage. School classrooms were a favourite of his. This would change to work meeting rooms when I got older. If I was called upon to speak and I wasn't expecting it, Forget that guy, look at me! Lefty would announce by leaping into the air and slamming his knee into the underside of the desk. Uh, I think we should. I'd do my best to ignore the throbbing pain emanating from my knee and carry on with waterlogged eyes. And girls. More specifically, intimate moments with girls. I'm not sure if Lefty didn't like these situations or if he just got overexcited by them. Either way, they made for high-risk engagements. Once in secondary school, I was sitting on a park bench alone with a girl and I had just worked up the courage to kiss her. Her hand slowly reached forward and rested on Lefty's knee. She had no idea what the consequences of her tender interaction would be and unfortunately I was helpless to warn her. The fright of Lefty's sudden explosion sent her flying backwards and off the park bench. She landed on the grass a good metre away. I can still see the utter shock and confusion on her face. Something had to be done to improve Lefty's behaviour. My doctors agreed. Lefty had gone through three physiotherapists by the time I was 12 years old. None of them could reason with him. It got to the point where putting on my left shoe became a daily physical struggle. Lefty would scrunch up his toes into a ball, making it almost impossible to slip into a shoe. His most stubborn sit-down protests could only be broken by force. I'm not going in that thing. I'd shove his foot in my Dunn's imitation Nikes and aggressively laced them up as tight as I could. That should hold him for a while, I thought. The doctor's solution was incarceration. Lefty was sentenced to be encased in a plaster cast for no shorter than eight weeks. It was for his own good. This would calm him down. Give him a chance to rehabilitate, the doctor said. But Lefty wasn't going quietly. They had to knock me out with general anaesthetic while they locked Lefty into position and cocooned him in plaster and gauze. When I came to, I was flattening my back. I flicked the sheet covering me over to survey the extent of Lefty's prison. My eyes started at the tips of Lefty's toes, the only part of him that remained exposed. I followed the white mottled surface as it extended past Lefty's knee, up his thigh and past my waist. It came to an abrupt terminus above my belly button. Then I followed the cast as it spread to the right, it wrapped around my waist and descended halfway down my right thigh. Sitting upright wasn't going to be possible for a while. 
Initially there wasn't a peep out of Lefty, which surprised everyone, most of all me. Unfortunately, this didn't last long. As soon as the Dazapan wore off, Lefty's rage was unleashed. Lefty spasmed, cramped and banged against the walls of his cell, but he didn't have enough space to build up enough momentum to really hurt himself. This was similar to how I remember the late Steve Irwin would transport aggressive crocodiles. He'd lead the croc into a long, thin wooden box where she didn't have enough room to thrash her large head around, thus saving her from self-harm. But Lefty still had one incredibly effective way of showing his anger. He'd curl up his toes with such force that they turned white. The only way to calm Lefty was more diazepam. As the weeks rolled on, Lefty's outbursts gradually diminished until they almost stopped completely. Had Lefty finally given up? Had this wild bucking bronco been broken? When the cast came off, it revealed a visibly different Lefty. Muscle atrophy had taken its course. Lefty was a lot thinner and weaker. His foot was fixed in a better position, but he was still partial to spasm. Nothing was ever going to change that. Building him back up again was a glacially slow and tedious process. Every day he'd attempt to bend his knee a degree or two farther than the last. On several occasions, in his eagerness to jump ahead, he'd break into a rapid spasm and bend his knee too far, which caused the hardened muscle tissue to break up. Some days it was one step forward, two steps back, but eventually his full range of motion was restored. After that ordeal, I wasn't sure how much good it actually did, or whether it was worth it, but the main thing was that it was over. However, my doctors knew better. They continued to periodically monitor my journey into adolescence. When I was about 13, an elderly doctor with an unabashed comb-over broke the news to me. Lefty's generally uptight nature and his staccato movement meant that his muscles were shorter and less developed than Wrighty's. Dr. Comover was worried that when my growth spurts kicked in, Wrighty would race ahead in his development, leaving Lefty, his slower brother, far behind. This would result in quite a length disparity between them, effectively leaving me lopsided. If I didn't want to walk around in circles for the rest of my life, then something drastic had to be done, and quickly. The doctors had two possible approaches. The first option was to force Lefty to grow at a faster rate. How do you do that? Steroids? Growth hormone injections? Or stick him on a medieval torture rack and stretch him? Well that last suggestion wasn't actually that far off. They could bore some holes into Lefty's bones, affix a surrounding cage structure and gradually attach tenser and tenser springs to stretch Lefty out. I knew exactly how Lefty would react to that suggestion. Oh fuck that, I'll make your life a living hell if you do that to me. The doctors seemed to agree with Lefty. Option two it was then, but it seemed incredibly unfair in my opinion. Instead of stretching Lefty, they would just slow down Righty. This could be achieved by purposefully breaking Righty's bones in several key places to stall for time. The extra attention required by Righty to heal would give Lefty enough time to catch up. That was the theory, anyway. Yeah, that sounds a lot better, all right. Dr. Comover made a point of telling me one weird fact he thought amusing. He said that as a result of the procedure, I would grow up to be a few inches shorter than an alternative version of myself, 
who didn't have his right leg broken in several places. The thought of this still occupies my mind from time to time. How much better off is the alternative me with his extra few inches? Was reaching cupboards easier for him? Did he ride more roller coasters? Did he join the Air Force? He probably has to hop everywhere though, so it swings in roundabouts. I was not happy about giving up the support of Righty for a while, but I was confident that the recovery process would be a lot more straightforward than what I'd experienced with Lefty. So Righty took one for the team and did it in his usual stoic style. He saw his time wrapped in a cast with minimal fuss and without any drugs. Oh, what a goody two-shoes. The ordeal left Righty scarred, a permanent reminder of the sacrifice he made for his difficult brother. But that wouldn't be the last time Righty would jump to Lefty's aid. I had just turned 14, and once again, I found myself being presented for inspection by Dr. Comover and his growing group of minions. I paraded up and down the room for them. One more time, please, Comover said for the fourth time. He mumbled words into his dictaphone every few seconds, his short sentences punctuated by the clunk of the stop button. Well, fella, I think we're nearly there, he said. We just need to set the left leg again. One more time. Oh, no. Lefty was cocooned again, locked back in his familiar prison like a serial offender. And he had no intention of trying to get out early on good behaviour. We endured his full sentence. Six weeks later, he was up for release. I hopped into the doctor's office jumped up on the bed and lay flat on my back. This was all very easy because Lefty's six-week internment had totally pacified him. I had become quite accustomed to dragging a large cast around with the help of a pair of crutches. A fresh-faced doctor who I had never met before would be the one removing the cast. Now I'm going to be using this saw today. It makes a loud noise, but it doesn't hurt a bit. Look! He demonstrated by running the blade of the miniature circular saw along the palm of his hand. See, it only cuts casts. He probably wondered why his little saw demonstration didn't instantly put me at ease. This usually did the trick. He obviously didn't realise that his scary saw was the least of my worries. So I tried to warn him about Lefty's outbursts. Don't worry about a thing, he said, cutting me off. You're in good hands. The sound of the saw dulled as it sunk deep into the cast, tipping against Lefty's skin underneath. The spinning blade moved slowly down the length of my outer leg. Once that was done, the saw opened up a seam down the length of the inner side. All done with the cutting now, the doctor proudly emphasised. Still not seeing any visible relief in his patient, he pulled at the freshly cut top section of the cast. It broke away after a couple of hearty tugs. The whole front of Lefty was now exposed to the fresh air. I could feel him beginning to twitch. Then the doctor pulled the remaining back section away. The doctor prodded random areas of Lefty with his fingers. Can you feel that? he questioned. Lefty started to shudder. I could feel him building up under me, like a bull getting ready to buck his unwanted rider. Nearly done, he said. Just try to... And then he said it. The one word that was sure to set Lefty off. Relax. 
Suddenly Righty sprang up and swivelled to the left like a tower crane in high winds. He threw himself on Lefty and pushed down hard with all the force he could muster. Lefty convulsed frantically, but he was no match for Righty's strength. The doctor let out a loud yelping sound. His hand was sandwiched between Lefty and Righty. Ah, can I just get my hand out, please? Try to relax, he pleaded. But that only caused Righty to bear down with more force. Until, crack, went the muffled sound of the doctor's little finger as it broke. Righty eased off just enough for the doctor to free his hand. I'm so sorry, I shouted. It's fine, it's, uh, it's fine, he said, trying to disguise his obvious discomfort. I'm going to let the nurse finish up here. I have to go. And he rushed out of the room, cradling his hand. So, Righty, the reliable, rule-abiding Righty, had caused grievous bodily harm. Lefty never came close to anything like that. In some ways I respected Righty's eagerness to prevent another bathroom floor incident, so I was willing to let him off on this extenuating circumstance. As the years passed, Lefty mellowed. Somewhat. He's still prone to the odd outburst, but for the most part Righty and I can see them coming. His turns are more like sulks than tantrums now. Uh, sometimes he'll refuse to move, the same way a dog who doesn't want to be walked will stop dead in the street. We have to just pull him along until he begrudgingly complies. That's just how he is. And he's not going anywhere. So we all just have to take it. One step at a time. Yeah, you won't be telling anyone to relax anymore. This has been a story for yarnpodcast.com. of Brian O'Regan and original music by Kieran Dunphy. Lorcan Cranach. You might recognise him from the hit HBO series Rome. He's also been on various other shows including Fortitude and Balakas Angel. So we're very grateful he agreed to perform the following monologue for us. Yarn. Yarn 12. Chanson Miarm. I've been off the drink now going on three months, not a drop, not since me health scare. But the sun is still mad for it, of course. The fridge is always full of cans. My Carlin Black Label and his Carlsberg, just so there wouldn't be any confusion. Well, he's since gone through whatever was left of mine, though. <clears throat> he's been bringing them off with him when he goes on his course for his lunch break. They're making them do a reading course. Can you believe that? The fecker goes through about five books a week, but they don't know that. The sci-fi shite. 
His head is constantly stuck in a book. He gets a new bunch out every Tuesday from the library in town. Now, I prefer reading about the real world myself. I read the paper from cover to cover every morning with a cup of coffee. Black. That sets me up for the day. They're making him do the reading course because he wasn't doing a tap on the computer course. He just sit there and look at the screen. And they says, you have to at least try or we'll report you. And he says, we can't read, so learning computers is pointless. He thought he was being a right clever cunt until a letter comes through the door saying he's been signed up for an adult literacy course. So now he's back learning his ABCs with a bunch of thick cunts and foreigners. <laughs> that makes me laugh. Sitting there all morning pretending he can't read and he dying to get home and crack into one of his uh, space books. Mm, he's well able to crack into Mike Hans at his 11 o'clock break though. The teacher used to give out to him but now she just leaves him off. It's not worth the hassle I'd say. To tell you the truth, I'd be worrying about him sometimes. Friday, he goes down to the pub, Walsh is in town. But the thing is, you couldn't trust him walking home. He goes a bit wobbly on his feet after a few. The feckin' guards brought him home one night. He was after falling asleep in the flower bed in the middle of the roundabout. And the next day, he says, well, that was handy, free taxi. Jeez, he was lucky they didn't throw him in the drunk tank for the night, or God forbid, if a car hit him stone dead. I says to him that if that happens again, he could wake up to Bridie Murphy or one of her tidy towns crowd picking litter around him at six in the morning. And that made him think twice all right. And his mother was always worrying after him. That much good it did. I met herself over in Leeds in, um, oh God, what was it? 68 or, or 70, I suppose. Beautiful she was. A, a yank like yourselves. I went over for work with a load of the lads. We did some savage work over there in digging drains, building walls, knocking walls, laying asphalt. It's a dirty job, that one. And you'd, you'd follow the truck so you could end up way out the road in the middle of nowhere. And me and the boys, we used to start bringing a few spuds with us. And then at the break, we'd lob the spuds, skin and all, into the vat of hot tar and let them boil. And then we'd fish them out break them open and eat them off our shovels. The tar stuck right to the skin so the inside bit was, was lovely so it was. Anyway, I went through a fair few jobs over there. I, I'd get bored after a few weeks and then go on a bit of a session and then start thinking about getting a new job. And that's where I met the Yank girl. She was working in the office getting terrible hassle from the boss. So I says to her, Feck him and these shower cunts. Let's get the feck out of here. And she came off with me. We moved around England for a bit. and uh, She was mad to live in London. But no sooner were we there than she gets terrible homesick for America. She gets on to her father and he offers to fly us over. Both of us. Did I hesitate? I didn't me fuck. So off to the USA I went. Scottsdale, Arizona. But living with her family almost did us in. I mean, the father didn't think much of me. It was hard for him to do any thinking with his head so far up his own arse. After then, didn't herself get pregnant. Oh, fuck, I was stuck then. We got married anyway and had, a, had the little fella. The same fella doing the reading course now. 
and I like to remind him every so often that he was born in America. Why don't you get up off your arse and run for president, I says to him. Well, anyway, a few months after he's born, I'm still out at the pub celebrating, and I get into a bit of an altercation over a game of pool with a big black fella. I was scared out of me shit, so I hit him a slap before he had a chance to land one on me. And didn't he go down like a sack of spuds? And then the cops come, and they lock me up. And when I was out in bail, I thought, feck this, I'm not going to one of those American prisons. They're full of riots and queer lads. So I skipped out, got a flight back to Ireland, and I says to myself, that's the last time Uncle Sam will ever hear from me. Now the wife was distraught, of course. She thought I'd run out on her too. Not at all. I phone back, and I say that I get everything set up over here first. I'll find a nice house and then she can move over with the young flip. I just needed a few quid up front for the house. So, her father wires over some money and, to be honest with you, I ended up going on the lash for a few months. I buy a bit of land for Billy Ryan to build on instead. Let's start. I was well able to build a house myself anyway, so we could have it exactly how we wanted it. The plot was right next door to Billy Ryan's farm, and he says we can stay in the caravan in his yard until the house is ready. Grand job, sound man Billy. Well then, when the wife moves over with the young lad, she's not happy with the situation. She starts saying, a farmyard is no place for a baby. It's dirty. There's a mound of manure five yards from our door. We've no running water. I tell her, and I tell her to be patient. But that just seems to set her off again. I was under a fair bit of stress. And one morning I woke up and oh, she's gone. She's, she left a note. She went back to America with the young lad. So, and then I met Sheila, an Englishman. Well, she says she's Irish, but she grew up her whole life in Sheffield, so she's a fair strong English accent on her. Her mother was from down the road, all right. She's a, an only child, not counting her twin sister that died when they were born. And when Sheila's mother died, she got left the house and an inheritance. So I took her off on a round-the-world trip. We went feckin' everywhere. Stayed in the best hotels. Europe, South America, feckin' China, Egypt, Morocco. <laughs> Jez, the lads loved Sheila there. <laughs> I used to say to them, what kind of a dowry would you have? And then we'll talk. And she's not much of a looker. The ogre, I calls her. But she's grand. I mean, looks aren't everything. And back in the day, in Leeds, I brought a lovely young one out to a dinner dance one night, and none of the lads could take their eyes off, wondering how defected I get her. She fancied herself as a bit of a singer, so I kept at her to get up and sing a song. And so she did. Well, fuck me, it was terrible, like a cat drowning. But suddenly, all the loveliness in her fell away, and I couldn't stand her screeching away up there. So I, I left. I just left her there. Fecked off home, so I did. Yeah, yeah. There was no fear of that with Sheila. She's barely got a tooth in her head, let alone a nerve. Anyway, so while we're in Morocco, we're having dinner out on the balcony when Sheila just slumps forward, her face planted in her pasta. And I'm laughing at first. 
Ah, jeez, Sheila, it's not a trough you're eating out of. Come on out of that. But she doesn't move. Turns out she's after having a stroke. She was never right again after that. A bit touched, you know. Even more than she was originally. Well, she puts it on too, though. When it suits her. Where's that tenor I left on the table, I'd say? Oh, I thought it, that that was mine, she says. I, I got confused, hon. Confuse me, arse. Sure, now her inheritance is gone, she'd be after my pension. You couldn't leave any money around the house or she'd have it gone. And she's still driving. She's still driving, even though she's no tax or insurance. Doesn't give a fuck. I might dob her in one day and get her locked up. But have a couple of nights peace out of it. I've no need for the car myself. I, I don't go anywhere. You're, you're better off letting people come to you at my age. And, and I haven't been to the pub since I gave up the drink, so... No, I mean, I'd start to miss it at Christmas, though. The drink. Uh, the, the ex-wife comes over from the States with her husband to see the young fella, she says. And they stay here well, with a great crack. The husband is a yank like herself and yourselves. Ex-military. He brings over a few bottles of bourbon and I sort out the potchie and I get it from the barman and Walsh's. Gives it out in the wine bottles at Christmas for a few of the regulars. The ex-wife's husband's mad for the stuff. <laughs> he, he can't hold his drink at all. I, mean, I thought holding your drink would be a requirement in the army. <laughs> and he says, no, that's the navy you're thinking of. He's a noibus soldier, though, all the same. He has scars all over him, and he's missing bits of ears and a, a bit of his leg. Fuck me, I don't know how he's still standing. Last Christmas Eve, we went through the whole of the potcheen and the bourbon. The army man doesn't drink cans, so, as not to be left behind, he takes Sheila's old Heinelli out to look for an off-license. A few hours pass, and there's no sign of him. The ex-wife is ringing him, and there's no answer, until... There is, but it's a nurse in the hospital who answers. Wasn't he after getting knocked over uh, by the uh, off the bike by a, a van down at the roundabout? Sheila brings us all to the hospital, and I'm hoping to God that no one stops us. We make it there, and the doctor says it's serious. No response to stimuli, he says. After they shine in a light in his eye, fake, he's in a coma. That's him turned into a vegetable for the rest of his days. And then the ex-wife asks, Which eye did you check? Did you check both? And I'm thinking, Has she got mad or what? He's got a glass eye, she says. Lost it years ago in Iraq. Well, I've never seen a doctor go as white. They were shining the light on the glass eye. He was grand. Out the next day, in time for Christmas dinner. Ye don't celebrate Christmas, do ye? Too pagan for ye. Do ye Jehovah's have any crack at all? Listen, listen, you may move on. I don't have time to be talking here all day. I'll tell you what. Head four doors down there to Bridie Murphy. She could use some tormenting. Goodbye. God bless. Our last story is to date our shortest episode, 
It's a six-minute beat poem. Listen out for excellent music and sound design on this one by composer Drembot. Yarn Yarn 11 Brick Lane free drink, one free papadom. I'm moving on. Two free drinks, two papadom. I've already gone. I pass the big blue-eyed leaflet distributor on the corner. She's bored, bald, and beautiful. I'm distracted, so I get caught by the kebab man. Excuse me, sir, he says. Do you want to make a donation to the donor kebab fund? He does this every day if I don't dodge him. You got me yesterday, I say. So I did, mate. I'll be on my way. And off he goes without delay. Stuck in his own groundhog day. I'm halfway there. I step around the tiny, shiny canisters of air thrown on the ground like discarded silverware. Sitting on the pavement is a man with a sign. It reads... Punch me in the face for five pounds. He already looks like he's done nine rounds. Hello, gorgeous, shouts the woman on crutches. She's all dressed up, not a hair out of place, but drug addiction takes its toll on her face. Buy me a drink, I hear her ask. Not tonight, I say. I can't. Fuck you then, you fucking prick, she gestures with her walking stick. New shops on Brick Lane are sure signs of gentrification. They pop up and down in a constant rotation. Shops for bow ties, ukuleles, and items I'd consider immaterial, and one cafe that just sells breakfast cereal. Just a few more strides and I'll be home for the night. 
I walk by the phone booth. A man bursts out wearing a suit. I overhear his plea to a pedestrian plodding past. Please, he says, do you have a few pence? I really need to phone my wife. My mobile has lost its battery life. The good Samaritan hands over their cash. The man slams the door closed with a crash. He's a phony. I see him here every evening. Is what he does thieving or merely deceiving? I'll leave him to it. I'm not intervening. I'm a couple of feet from reaching my flat when a woman in distress crosses my path. In broken English, she shouts, Help, hospital, man bleeding. I hesitate at first, but end up seeding. A cyclist stands with his bike in the street. His arm is bloodied like a raw piece of meat. I've had an accident, he says. Can you give me some cash for a cab? I need urgent assistance. The hospital is quite a distance. I've seen that very same gash before, not two weeks ago, outside my front door. It's been two weeks and you're still hurt. How many times since then have you hit pay dirt? The man jumps on his bike and pedals out of sight. The woman looks shocked at how quickly the hurt man took flight. I've run the gauntlet and arrived at my destination. I'm thinking about my bed and sleep in anticipation. My flatmates stop me on the stairs. We're off for a drink, one of them declares. There's a new bar open down the road. Why don't you come with us, he elbowed. I was determined to have an early night, stay in, sleep and dream. But after that dash home, now I'm in the mood to blow off some steam. Let's go, I say. We walk back out on the cobbled terrain. Who knows what'll happen tonight on Brick Lane. This has been a story for yarnpodcast.com Written and narrated by John Roach.